morning, saints. Would you turn with me in your copy of the Lord's Word to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. We are going to attempt uh, to finish this book uh, sometime in the future. Uh, We've been trying. (laughs) Uh, We're going to try again. So this is another stretch where we try again. To, to, to get through the book. Uh, Acts chapter 13, our attention this morning will be from verse 4 all the way to chapter 14, verse 7. But just to begin, let me read for us verse 4 to verse 12, and then we will look at the next sections as we get to them. Hear then God's word. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named uh, Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, Full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This is the reading of God's Word. Well, if you haven't been with us, we have been in the book of Acts for a while now, and we've seen a number of things happen throughout the book of Acts. We've seen the Holy Spirit come down after the Lord Jesus left in chapter 2, come down, empower the, the disciples to preach, as they, and they preach the gospel throughout Judea and Samaria. Uh, We saw, of course, the persecution that came that caused them to actually move into these other areas. Uh, We saw the Lord uh, communicate in chapter 9 that he wants Saul, uh, who is also called Paul, he wants Saul to be the instrument to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, to the nations. And then we also saw uh, Peter again, along with the Jewish church, being imp- having it impressed upon them that the gospel must go out to the Gentiles. They were resisting that movement. We saw them resist that, and the Lord actually even pushed Peter to go uh, to preach the gospel to Cornelius. We saw that in chapter 10, and the remnants of that in chapter 11. And then we saw in chapter 12 how the, there was... Serious persecution. Sorry, before chapter 12, we saw at the end of chapter 11, the birth of this church here in uh, in Antioch. This is Antioch in Syria. And there was this new church, and we we saw the details of how the new church was about, what kind of church was it. It was a church generally of Gentiles, 
uh, full of people from all kinds of nations, and how they were committed to spreading the gospel throughout the area. And then we, we flip back to, in chapter 12, we flip back to Jerusalem and saw the persecution that was there that they went through and how uh, the Lord humbled uh, King Herod. And that was the last time we saw the, the, the church in Jerusalem because we saw that now the focus of the book of Acts and really the focus of God's missionary activity is now centered from the church at Antioch in Syria. So before this, the headquarters really of Christendom was Jerusalem. And in many, in many senses, it still is at this point. But the, in terms of where the power is, in terms of where the work of the Lord is, in terms of where, what it is that the Lord is doing in the world, that is now centered at the church at Antioch in Syria. And then, and then we saw uh, their, them set apart for good works, Barnabas and Saul. That's the last thing that we saw. And so in the passage now in, in front of us, here from verse 4 to uh, chap- verse 28 of chapter 14, Luke is interested in telling us about the first planned missionary journey of the Christian church. This is the first planned, thought out missionary journey of the Christian church. Remember the, the previous iterations of evangelism that we've seen so far in the book of Acts. This, unlike that, those ones, this one is deliberate and goes to the nations. You remember that the previous forays were passive. So in chapter 8, that, that venturing into Samaria happened because of persecution. They, the church in Jerusalem did not plan that. It happened because the Lord raised persecution for them to spread them across, to get them to do what they're supposed to be doing. And then, of course, and then, and then even the, 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 the preaching to the Gentiles in chapter 10, we, we saw that that was because the Lord was pushing it by the Spirit. It was not something that the church in Jerusalem did. But here, we're seeing it, 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 it being planned. This was the Spirit coming and saying, this is what He wants done. And so now these men are going out, uh, spoken to by the Spirit of God, empowered and equipped and commissioned by the church in Antioch, to take the gospel to the nations. Now, in looking at this first missionary journey, there are multiple details, multiple details, and will be pulled in many different directions if we try to discuss all of them in detail. That's actually, just talking to, to Chita this morning, how this, this text really lends itself more to a lecture than a sermon. Uh, so, but in, in order, I don't want us to be bombarded by details. We'll, we'll, we'll pick up the details as we go along over the next few weeks. But my aim this morning is, is this, so that we can focus on some of the main thread that are coming through here. Here's my main focus this morning for us. The thread is this that we're going to pick up on, is that the gospel is not making inroads with the Jews in the diaspora, but rather it is making inroads with the Gentiles in the diaspora. That's the thread that we're going to pick up on mostly. So we have, we have expected that the Gentiles would accept the gospel since chapter 9. But what is worth noting here is the serious rejection of the gospel by the Jews everywhere it is preached. As we're going to go through these, these different cities that we're going to see now as the gospel arrives there, we're going to see this thread of the Jews rejecting the gospel. Now... Then we have to ask the question, why is it that the Jews in the diaspora, that is the Jews who are scattered across the Roman world, why is it that they reject the gospel? 
We've already seen the Jews in Jerusalem and Judea reject the gospel. And we've seen in the gospels how the Jews rejected the Lord Jesus Christ and had him killed. But the question now for us is, why do the Jews who are scattered all over the Roman world, why would they reject the Lord Jesus? And, there's a, there's, and, and when you think about this, just, just bear with me. There's at least one reason why we would expect a different response from the Jews who are scattered in the diaspora. The Jews who are not in their land, right? they're scattered all over the Roman world, they're being beaten this way and that by the people in, out there in the world. Those Jews who are not in their land, they are waiting for the Messiah who will strip them from their misery and make them rule over the nations who have hurt them. So if the Jews in Judea who largely rule themselves are desperate for the Messiah, and we've seen that, certainly we would expect that the Jews who are scattered around the Roman world would be desperate and excited to hear that indeed the Messiah has come. But what we find in this missionary journey repeatedly is that they are largely not happy and they have other priorities. So think with me. What can cause foreigners who are in other lands to not accept their liberator when he has come? What could cause pilgrims who are suffering at the hands of the Romans in other lands, what would cause them to not accept their liberator who has come to liberate them? There are three reasons that Luke gives us in these first, the first three cities that we're going to arrive at. We're going to arrive now in Cyprus. Sorry, that's a country, Cyprus. We're going to arrive also in Pisidian Antioch. And we're going to see, we're going to also in the first part of chapter 14, we're going to arrive at Iconium. And each time the gospel arrives there, each time the, the missionaries arrive there with the gospel, there is a different reason for the rejection of the gospel by the Jews. First, in Cyprus, the reason is money and influence. Second, in, in Pisidian Antioch, jealousy is the given reason. And thirdly, at Iconian in chapter 14, verse 1 to 7, we'll see disobedience. So here are the reasons for gospel rejection. Money and influence, jealousy, and disobedience. We're going to go through this and see what we can learn from these items. So, now let us enter into the story here that we've just read at Cyprus. Number one, we, let's look at the mission in Cyprus. So, the, they are sent out. Remember, this is Barnabas and Paul along with John. They are being sent out uh, from, from Antioch. And they are arriving in Seleucia. And they sailed to Cyprus. So, they come to this to this little island there called Cyprus, and they come to the east coast in Salamis. They land there and they begin. When they get to Salamis, they, they start there and they, they preach the gospel uh, in the synagogues of the Jews. Now, Luke doesn't tell us here how the, the message was received in the synagogue specifically. He actually just glosses over that. He doesn't, he doesn't tell us. Uh, he wants us to focus on this particular this. this this, this guy, Elimas, and the proconsul. But you might also wonder, we, we, also, we also, don't, also don't know why when, the, when these men, when they left Antioch, why is it that the first place that they went to is Cyprus? 
we, we're not sure why that is, but there's, there's, it, there's, there's a good guess, and the good guess is that John Mark, whom we were told is part of this missionary team, and Barnabas, of course, who's the other preacher in this team, are from Cyprus. So maybe they just decide, let's just start here and start preaching in a place that we know. But, we, but that's, that's just conjecture. We, we're not sure why. And then when they, 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 preach from, they, preach in, they preach in the East Coast and they travel all the way to, to Paphos preaching the gospel. Now, we, we don't know how, how the gospel is being received. It seems like they're gaining prominence because when they arrive in Paphos, they are called by this man, the proconsul, which is another word for governor of an area, Sergius Paulus. They are called by him because he wants to hear them, he wants to talk to them. So clearly as they're coming in Cyprus and they're preaching up a storm across from the east coast to the west coast, they are becoming more and more famous. Um, and so the, the governor wants to meet Paul and he wants to hear the word of God that they are preaching. But the thing is that this, this, this Gentile, this Sergius Pilos, has a guy working for him who is a Jewish false prophet called literally son of Jeshua. So the transliteration there says by Jesus, that just literally means son of Joshua. And this son of Jeshua called Elimas attempts to get him to not pay attention to what they're saying. He wants to turn him away from the faith. Look at verse 8. But Elimas the magician, for his name is translated this way, opposed them, attempted to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So Sergius Paulos is the governor. He's a big shot. He's a ruler in the area. And he has this magician working for him. And this magician that's working for him, he does not, this magician does not want... Uh, Sergius Paulus to, to pay attention to what uh, Paul and Barnabas are preaching. And you might ask yourself, why? Why would this Jew not want these other Jews to come and have an audience with, their, with his boss? Why would, he, why, why would he turn them away? Well, Luke does not spell it out for us specifically. Uh, but there is enough data here in the way that Luke writes that makes the obvious, the reason very obvious for us why Elimas does not want Sergius Paulus to become a Christian. You see, Elimas is part of the governor's entourage. He has a lucrative position. He is the governor's personal magician. So the Romans at that time, put, they put great stock in powers of divination. And even a lot of Roman governors had oracles, their own sacred oracles. So you're going to be my personal sangoma. You're going to travel with me. Charlatans uh, like Elimas were usually smooth and they were highly knowledgeable, practicing a sort of pseudoscience, we're told, uh, by, uh, by Paul Hill. His Jewish credentials did not hurt him either because the Jews had a reputation among the Romans for their antiquity and their depth of religious knowledge. So remember at a time where, so today it's all about intelligence and wisdom and being clever and being scientific and, and being, you know, having those, those videos that, that, you know, those short videos where you say something very powerful. That's the people that we take seriously today. But back in the day, it was somebody who had religious power. Somebody who has religious experience, who's got the kind of religious wisdom, and that's what the Jews had. And so 
The, the Jewish historian Josephus mentions a number of such Jewish magicians who had great successes among the Gentiles. So there was a job. This was a, an occupation. You can grow up as a Jew and then you can choose. Oh, let me become a magician and go work for the Romans somewhere. You can become a tax collector. You can become something else. You can also become a magician who works for a Roman. Uh, so, so Elimas probably offered his services to Sergius Paulus in terms of divining future events for him. You tell him, do this business deal. You're going to be, you're going to be successful or, or go, in this, uh, go in this particular area. Rule over these people and do like this. What's going to happen if you, if you fight with this guy? So just like Simon the Magician in chapter 8, the setup here is really about money. Do you remember Simon the Magician? What he wanted was money. When he saw the, 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 the power of the, the apostles and how they were able to do things that were amazing, he wanted that power for the sake of using it for money. He was a magician. Now, you tell me, what will be the result for Elimas if the governor listens to these miracle-performing apostles? Right? At least in Elimas' mind. And not only that, but what would become the result for Elimas if, if Sergius Paulus, this, this, his benefactor, actually becomes one of these people, actually becomes a Christian? What, what's, going to be, what's going to happen to his job, his standing, the money that he's getting from, by being this guy's magician? Povat. Right? <laughs> Povat. That's what's going to happen to him. He'll, he'll be in trouble. He'll be out of a job. And you have, to, you have to think about this. This guy, Elimas, he's a Jewish outcast. He's not somebody that Jews love. Okay? He's, he's, he's the person who is considered unclean because he's a magician. Black magic was hated among the Jews because, he was, because it was forbidden. So this is not a guy who's allowed in the synagogue. This is not a guy who is loved by his people. This is a guy who's an outcast among his people. And he's now found his niche among the pagans. And he's doing paganism for them. So his career as a magician is right where he needs it to be right now because he's right next to the Roman governor in this particular area. These Christians and their gospel is messing things up for him. And so for that reason, he opposes them. This is the first Jew we're told of here who rejects the gospel in this missionary endeavor. And the reason he rejects it is money and influence. It is possible, friends, that when Paul said that the love of money is the root of all evil, he might have had characters like this man in his mind. It's not hard to see that this person cares not just for money, but for the position that he has by being close to the Roman governor. If these Christians win over my master, I will lose my position. I must oppose them. There are people, friends whose care and concern is entirely earthly. There are people whose care, whose, whose heartbeat is only for earthly things, whose interest is completely wrapped up in the immediate, such that the truth is irrelevant. Think about this. We have heard nothing from Elimas regarding the truthfulness of this matter. Elimas is not saying, no, listen, Jesus did not rise from the dead. We, we have his body. 
Elemas is not saying, no, listen, no, listen, listen. This, this, this religion is not true. This religion is, is fake because of these reasons. We as Jews, we reject it because of these. No, there's nothing like that. There's no, there's no cogent examination of the facts. He is just satisfied to oppose them so that his master does not become a Christian. That's all he cares about. So if, if you're in here this morning, you must examine are you rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ because of some inconvenience? Are you rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ because of some inconvenience to you if somebody receives the gospel or if you receive the gospel? More precisely, are you influencing someone to not be a Christian because it would be inconvenient to you? Are you happy to have this person trudging along with you in nonsense? You children in the church, children in the church, listen to me. Is it possible that you are not believing the gospel and you are holding back your siblings? You're holding back your friends from being fully committed to Christ because if they become committed to Christ and their lives change, you will have nobody to commit evil with. Is it possible that you are here not only, not, you're not, not only believing yourself, but you're also causing others. You're, you are happy to drag these other people down because you want to enjoy evil with this person. This person's conversion is going to become a problem for you. Be warned. Do not stand in the way of the gospel in any way. And certainly not for money. If you are rejecting the gospel because you know that becoming a Christian is going to mean that you have to stop the corrupt practices that you're committing, why would you do that trade? Is your soul not more important than money? If you are rejecting Christianity because you know that, that in the night you practice certain things that you know Christianity calls you out on and you don't want, and you don't want to be called out on those things, why aren't you dealing with the reality of the matter that you will die and be judged for those things, regardless of what you enjoyed while you were here? So being so temporally minded, thinking just of the immediate, just of what I'm seeing, just of what I'm experiencing, is incredibly foolish. You're thinking like a five-year-old. I saw a video the other day where... This video, they, there was a kid and this person brought two Oreos. They said, here's $10,000. $10,000 to this, I don't know how old the kid was, maybe five, four. $10,000, here it is. And now here are two Oreos. Which will you choose? The kid said Oreos. <laughs> and they said, no, 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 think about this. This is $10,000. Do you understand how many Oreos you could have with $10,000? Would you want to have that? Or would you want to have these two Oreos? No, 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 Oreos. It was not a question in the child's mind. Oreos. That's what you're thinking like. You're thinking like a child. You are, you are, you are choosing temporal pleasure, trading that with eternal pain. That's what he's doing. It is, this is the height of foolishness. To reject the Lord Jesus Christ, not because you find Him untruthful, but because there's some kind of joy you don't want to let go. Foolish. You have to be warned. Be warned. Look at what 
Look at how Paul responds to him in verse 9. But Saul, also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O you who are full of all deceit and all unscrupulousness, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is against you, and you will be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell over him, and he was going around looking for people to lead him by the hand. Do you remember the last person that we found in the, in the book of Acts who was blind? Who was made blind by the Lord? Who was it? It was Paul Saul himself. Saul knows what he's talking about. Because Saul was blind because he thought he saw. And he was made blind to, make, to reflect while he's talking like he's wise, as if he knows, as if he's truly a zealous, righteous Jew, the reality is that he's blind. he was blind when he was opposing the gospel. And so the Lord struck him with blindness so that his physical disposition matches his spiritual one. That's exactly the same thing that's happening here. This guy is hired as a magician to be the, to be the guy who, who sees things, who understands things, who divines things, but, but he's actually blind. And Sergius Paulos will be a fool to listen to this guy. Because this guy has now been struck blind as a judgment, but as a judgment that reveals truly what is inside. This is just the Lord saying, actually, this is what you really are like. You think you see, but you don't. You're blind. The apostle confronts him and calls him. Notice what the apostle calls him there in verse, in verse 10. His name is son of Joshua. But what does the apostle call him? Son of the devil. That's what you are. You're son of the devil. When you oppose the gospel. Now listen to me. When you're opposing the purposes of the gospel. You're opposing Christ in any way. For the sake of material convenience. You are a son of the devil. When you are putting things in front of people to stop them from believing the gospel for the sake of material convenience, you are a son of the devil. When you are preaching nonsense, evil nonsense to people so that you can line up your pockets, you are not a son of God, you are a son of the devil. This is a very strong passage showing what those are who put things and obstacles in front of people who are who, who, in stopping people from coming to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is important for us also as God's people because the scripture says that we must adorn the gospel of Christ with what? Scripture says we must adorn the gospel of Christ with our lives. The way that we live must adorn the gospel of Christ. The way that we live is not the gospel of Christ, but the way that we live adorns the gospel of Christ. So if we live in evil ways, thereby putting stumbling blocks, causing others to blaspheme the way of righteousness, we are acting like sons of the devil. Are you with me? That's what Paul says. In fact, that's what Peter says in 2 Peter. He says, because of the way that they act, the way of righteousness is blasphemed. So is the way that you and I are living, is it causing the way of righteousness to be blasphemed? If it is then we are acting like sons of the devil. The way that we act and conduct ourselves amongst the Gentiles must adorn the gospel of grace such that it does not become a stumbling block because of our evil behavior. 
Now, is there anything that we can learn from Paul's response here? Well, we are not apostles. Paul was the last apostle. There will be no others. We've seen that. So, we, we are not going to oppose those who, pre, who, who put stumbling blocks in front of, those, of people uh, by telling them to be blind or calling blindness on them. That was for the apostles. But I do believe that when you read those Psalms of David, have you read those Psalms of David that maybe you read and then just skip through them because you have no idea what to do with them? Where, where David says, Lord, bash their teeth in. Break their bones. Have you read those Psalms? Oh, they're in the Bible. Pray to God. I believe that that's what, this is where we can apply. That if there are people who by their, who by their teaching and because of money and what they want to advance, they are, called, they are putting stumbling blocks and stopping people from believing the gospel. We can pray those prayers. Lord, shut them down. Lord, please close their mouths such that they are not able to speak. Or in this way of this blindness, we could say, Lord, please expose these men to the people so that the people can see that these people are not seeing that they are blind. We can pray those prayers. There's a place for those prayers. And it is specifically for those who are putting obstacles, stopping people from preaching, from hearing the gospel and believing it. Anyone who, makes, who takes the gospel of Christ and twists it so that he can gain some kind of convenience, feel free to go to these psalms and pray. Because the gospel of God must not be opposed. The gospel of God must be, must be preached and people, and, and, and we, must not, we must not sit by idly and, in, and, and just watch as men, like what Paul is saying here, men are, are, are twisting the ways of the Lord, making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. We can't idly sit by. We ought to pray, Lord, how long will you, will you allow this guy to, to twist your word like this to make merchandise of people's souls? We can pray that. That's one thing that we can take in terms of the response here. Well, that was, that was Cyprus. That's Cyprus. And the reason that the, that the Jew that we find there in Cyprus rejects the gospel is money and influence. Now let's turn as the apostles now travel in verse 13 and they travel to Pisidian Antioch. Now Paul and his companions, verse 13, put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. But John departed from them and returned to Jerusalem. And they went on from Perga and arrived at Pisidian Antioch. And they entered into the synagogue on the day of the Sabbath and sat down. So after the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent word to them saying, Men and brothers, if there is a message of exhortation by you for the people, say it. Preach it. Bring it to us. And so Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he began to preach. So, the brother, so the, these missionaries, they set out from Perga and John leaves them and goes back to Jerusalem. Now, keep that in mind. We will come back to that later because it's going to be, become an issue um, in chapter 15. As they're, they're traveling there, they're continuing in the work and John leaves and goes back to Jerusalem. He doesn't even go back to Antioch. He goes back to Jerusalem. Uh, this, is, this is going to become an issue. So if you want to understand how it's going to become an issue, keep coming to church. Okay? 
Uh, we will see it later on in Acts 15. But let's move on. Uh, he, they, and when they arrive in, uh, here in Pisidian Antioch, they do exactly what they did when they arrived in Cyprus. They went to the synagogue of the Jews to preach the gospel there first. And what happens? Look at this positive reception. They are told, no, brothers, please, if you have anything to say to the people, please say it. This is wonderful. You know, be very careful if you, if you have a wedding or, or something. Uh, you, you, have, you have some kind of event and there's a preacher there and you say, if you have something to say, please say it. Be very careful. Because uh, preachers, they, they, get, they get paid by the word. So, so be, but the, and the reason I'm saying that is because here, Paul preaches his longest sermon in his book. This is a very long sermon here. He preaches, he says, oh, you've given me an opportunity to proclaim the gospel. I'm going to take it. And I'm going to take my time. Well, he preaches, he gives them the gospel. And uh, the Paul's, this is really Paul's gospel presentation to the Jews. This is, this is typical of what Paul would have preached wherever he went into the synagogues. And I'm not going to analyze all the aspect of, all aspects of it because pretty much we've heard it before. We have heard aspects of it in Peter's sermon when we looked at Acts chapter 2. And we've also heard aspects of it in Stephen's long speech in, uh, to the Jewish leaders in chapter 7. But if I'm to give you a summary, here's the summary of Paul's long sermon. This is what he says. God had dealt with the Israelites through David. And through David, God promised a son who has now arrived. And that son is Jesus Christ. And he's saying, you Jews here in the diaspora, you have been waiting on the promise of God for the son of David who will not die. Here he is. He has, he has arrived and his name is Jesus Christ. And not only did, and their prophets predicted that he will not die and he didn't die. That's really the, the, that's the summary of the story. And so this Lord Jesus Christ is now the one through whom we are to receive salvation. He's saying this to these Jews. If you want, if you, if you, if you want to find freedom from the yoke of Moses... Or the impossibility of keeping Moses, you are now to be freed in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 38. This is, this is when he, after he's explaining the, the Lord, doing all of it and what the Lord has done, he then says this in verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The word freed is, is useful and helpful, but really the, the literal meaning here is justified. That's actually the word. Everyone who, 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 who believes is justified from everything uh, from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. This is his gospel presentation. He's saying to them that you have been trying to attain something that you could not attain by the law of Moses. You can now, it is to be attained completely, once and for all, through the works of Jesus Christ. And the message is true for everyone, whether you're a Jew or not. This message of the apostles. And it is this, that, that communion with God is something you cannot attain. It is only to be given to you through what Jesus Christ has achieved. 
Righteousness and holiness is something you cannot attain. It is something that is to be given to you freely through the work of this son of David, who is the promised one. Just like it is foolish to reject the gospel because of a temporal inconvenience, it is also foolish to attempt to be right with God apart from God's gift. It is foolish. Now, there's another step. You can say, well, no, I'm not trying to be right with God. I'm already right with God. God and I are fine. You're lying. You're not. You're not. Your conscience tells you. That's just a lie. When you say to me or to anybody else, no, I don't have to have something right with God. I don't need to be made right with God. God and I are fine. You're lying. You know how I know you're lying? Because I'm going to ask you about your lies. I'm going to ask you about the thoughts that you've had just this morning. I'm going to ask you about your thieving that you've done in your life. The things that you've taken that, are not, that do not belong to you. And then your conscience is going to prick you. And then you're going to say, yo, but God is forgiving. Aha! I've got you. I've got you now. Because you say, no, 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 of course I've got sins. But everybody sins and God is forgiving. Okay, so you are admitting that you are, you are in need of forgiveness. You are admitting that. See, don't say that there's nothing that needs to be fixed between you and God. No, everything between you and God needs to be fixed. And it is only through the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ that it can be fixed. Rejecting the Jesus, the Jesus of Nazareth, rejecting Him and not grabbing a hold of Him is foolish. Because what else will you do? Your works will not get you there. For every good thing you've done, you've done a hundred bad things. Your conscience is always going to be on your case. You know, I was talking to some, I was talking to some students recently. Not students here. Okay. No, not you students. No, no. I was talking to some students recently and, and this, this atheist student came to me and he said, he said, he said I have an issue with you Christians. You Christians have, you Christians teach children about the concept of guilt. You tell children that are young that they are guilty and they have sins and they are guilty, but these are, these are innocent children. And then I responded to him and I asked him, I said, do you want to live in a society where people can do whatever they want to do and feel no guilt? He said... Is that, do you want to do that? To just to live in a society where people can, can do this and do whatever without, and, they, and it's fine, they feel fine. Isn't there a word for that even in psychology? And then he told me, yes, there is a word for that. It's called a, a psychopath. Okay, so do you, want, do you want people to be psychopaths? See, this, 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 this thinking that we shouldn't be talking about the guilt that we have because of our sins with God, against God is ridiculous. Just even on a societal level, there's no level at which it makes sense. When something wrong has been done, it needs to be fixed. If you have sinned, who's going to pay for it? The Lord Jesus Christ is that man. Because, the, because death did not hold him down and he rose again from the, from the grave. He proves that he did not die for his own sins. He died for the sins of others. Because he himself was righteous. Death had nothing to do with him. And it's through Him and Him alone. So I would encourage you, please, stop with the foolish arguments. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, He's coming to them in the synagogue and He says this, he says this to them. 
And look at the response to the message that he preaches, to this, to this, to this implication that he gives to them. Look at verse 42. And as they were going out after his long sermon, they were going out and they began urging that these things be spoken to them again at the next Sabbath. And after the, the synagogue broken up, many of the Jews and the devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas who were speaking to them and were persuading them to continue in the grace of God. Well, what a wonderful, what a wonderful evangelism. Right? They say, not, they said, this is wonderful. Let's hear, let's hear this again next week. We'll come. I'll bring my friends. We'll come next week. And we, talk to us again. Can, you, can we stop with the dry preaching from these other guys? Can we hear you guys again? <laughs> these guys are just like reading the Torah. It's very dry. What you guys are saying, it's, it's exciting. Can you guys come again next week? And, and many are following the, the apostles now. It's, it seems it's powerful. It's wonderful. It seems very successful. Well, then next Saturday comes around. Okay, so now it's the next event. The tent has come again. Next Saturday rolls around and look at what happens in verse 44. And on the coming Sabbath, so this is next Saturday, nearly the whole city came together to hear the word of the Lord. So everyone's like, hey, did you guys hear the preaching from these guys? Everybody's there. They want to hear what these guys... The, the, the synagogue is full to the brim. They are probably thinking about, you know, do we need to raise funds to get another building? Like it's... It's... it's you know, it's... It's packed, right? It's packed. And, 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 and forgive Luke of the, the license. Luke says the whole city. Obviously not the whole city, but he's trying to say that it is, it's, it's the whole city. Everybody was there. Everybody was there. Uh, it, was, it was packed. And, and, and the reason that this is an issue, that this becomes an issue. Look at verse 45. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with what? They were filled with jealousy. And began contradicting what was being said by Paul and by reviling him. Wait a second. Last week, you guys, the same people who said to Paul, Hey, if you have a word, please say it. Last week, you guys were the same ones who said, We want to hear this again next week. And now, and of course, when he says the Jews there, he's specifically talking about the leaders of the Jews. Not necessarily that every Jew there, but the leadership of the Jewish synagogue and the, those who represent Judaism. Now, you guys are jealous because the whole city wants to hear what Paul and Barnabas are saying. They are contradicting what he is saying. They didn't contradict him last week. Did you notice that? They didn't debate with him last week. They didn't come at him and say, I, when are you wrong? If they had asked questions last week, they were asking questions to try and understand. This week, they are contradicting, filled with jealousy. They're jealous of the crowds. They also want the crowds. They also want people to be beholden to them. They're saying, why is it that I've been preaching here for 30 years? Paul comes one Sunday. <laughs> one Sunday, Paul comes. And everybody wants to come. Imagine, it's just like, it's like, you know, you know, Michael's been here for 12 years and then all of a sudden we get like, you know, a guy from America or something or a guy from somewhere. He comes and preaches here and the whole of Melville wants to come to church. <laughs> you know, Look, these guys, are, they're like, no, 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 no. They're full of jealousy. They cannot handle it. Um, they were not, they were, they, they. They are at now, and, and, and notice what they're doing. He says they are contradicting what is being said by Paul by reviling him. 
So they're not actually arguing about the details. They're not saying, no, 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 Jesus was, Jesus was not born from David. Jesus was born from, you know, someone else. Jesus is not from the tribe of Judah, so he can't be the Messiah. Uh, uh, no, 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 we have the body of Jesus. Jesus was not resurrected. No, they're not coming with substantive arguments that can be proved. They're coming to contradict him with the method of reviling Paul. Ah, but you guys want to listen to this guy. Are you sure you want to listen to this guy? This guy can't even look properly. He looks ugly. Look at him. This is the guy people are here to see. See, they're, they're reviling him. They're saying all kinds of slanderous things to Paul. And they're doing that because they're fueled by jealousy. Let me ask you this. Oh, let me say this to you, rather. It is possible that of all the reasons that you are giving for rejecting the gospel, they're all not real. There is a deeper reason that you are not willing to admit. What is it? Be honest. What is it? For these guys, it was jealousy. They're acting as though something is wrong with Paul, but there's nothing wrong with Paul. The thing that's in their chest. The kids say they have chest pains. No, they, something is in their chest here, right here. And that thing that's in their chest is jealousy. Jealousy. But now they're acting as though, no, they, we have arguments. It's Paul, he can't speak, he's doing this, he's doing that. But it's all surface. There's something really here. What is inside you really that's stopping you from believing the gospel? And, and, and what is the surface? Thing? There's this surface thing that you keep saying. You keep saying this, keep saying that, keep saying this. Saying these things, saying that, saying that, saying that. But there's a deeper reason underneath. What is it? Be honest. Be honest. Stop making all kinds of excuses. No, I have church hurt. Or I have this. No, there's a real reason. What is it? Stop pointing fingers everywhere and everywhere. Look inside. Why is it that you are rejecting the gospel? If you have not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, what's the reason? What has Christ told you that you are going to have to forsake if you follow Him? That you are not willing to forsake. What associations that if you, if you follow Christ, you know you're going to have to sever and you're not willing to sever? Who is the person that you know, if I follow this way, I can't continue with this person. I can't continue living like this. Who is it? Stop with the excuses. Put that aside. Deal with truth. Is Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead? That's all that matters. If Jesus Christ is resurrected from the dead, then all of these things, they don't matter. What matters is that there is a man who rose from the dead and he's, he has, he's telling me to follow him so that I can also rise from the dead. Do not jeopardize your eternity for these things that are temporal. Things that don't matter. Excuses that are weak. Don't do it. Don't be like these men. Or how do the apostles respond to this rejection? Verse 46. Both Paul and Barnabas spoke boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. We're done with you. You Jews... It was necessary that the gospel is preached to you because you're Jews. You're the ones who have the oracles of God. You're the ones who are from this lineage. But because you are rejecting it, we're done with you. Now we're just going to focus on the Gentiles. Now he's not talking about Jews everywhere. He's talking about Jews specifically at Pisidian Antioch. 
saying, we're not going to come to the synagogue anymore. We're not going to come to you guys. We're not just going to deal with the Gentiles here because you guys don't want to hear the gospel. Verse 47, for so the Lord commanded us, I have appointed you to be a light for the Gentiles that you would bring salvation to the end of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began to rejoice and to glorify the word of the Lord and those who were designated to eternal life believed. So the word of the Lord was carried through the entire region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high social standing and the most prominent men of the city and stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and threw them out of their district. So after shaking off the dust from their feet against them, they went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. How did Paul and Barnabas respond to this rejection? They made clear that because the Jews have rejected the gospel, they will now preach here to the Gentiles. And the Jews can't stand. Remember, the issue here is not that, oh, I don't want to hear you because you're talking nonsense. No. Remember, the issue is, I can't stand that people are following you. And so many people are following you. So they continue to harass them. By, con- by talking to the connected families who run the city. They, they go to all the high social standing people, the, the, you know, the, the bourgeoisie of the town. They go to them and they say, let's, let's get these people out of here. And they incite them and they, they stir up persecution uh, so that they can, get, so get, they, they can get them kicked out. The story shows us two things, friends. Number one, God has people whom he is working in and, um, and number two, our efforts are best used there. So the way that the apostles respond teaches us something even in our evangelism. Because look at what it says there. It said, as many as were ordained, designated to eternal life, those believe. So you and I, when we're preaching the gospel, we do not know whom God has ordained to eternal life. So we must pray constantly that God gives us opportunity among those whom he has ordained. We do not just preach the gospel for the sake of it. We want men and women to be transferred from darkness into life. Therefore, we must be prayerful that as we go out and share the gospel to everyone, that the Lord will bring us into contact with those whom he has designated for eternal life. There are some people who just want to preach the gospel and say, see, I've ticked the box, I've preached the gospel. See, I've just stood there in the corner of the street, shouted at passers-by, I've done my evangelism, that's it. But that's not really the heart of an evangelist. See, see what these men are doing. The heart of an evangelist is that they want to preach where God is working. They, want, they don't just want to preach and then leave it out there. They want people to be transferred from darkness to light. So in the same way for us, We want to ensure, we want as much as the Lord could give us, please make us encounter those whom you are working in. Pray that. As you're praying for gospel opportunities, as you're you're praying for boldness to preach the gospel, pray, Lord, give me opportunities with the people that you are working among. I can't see them without my eyes. I'll preach to everyone. But Lord, if you could just make it so that I encounter those whom you are working in. That even here at the church, that that we might have people come through here whom you are working in so that they can be transferred from darkness to life. There's another thing here. We must discern which people we ought to dust off our feet from. See, they're dusting off their feet. 
They're saying, you know, we were done with you, they dust off their feet. Well, we don't have to divine who are the people that we are to dust off our feet from. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy and Titus that there are some people who are just enamored with talking. Some people who are enamored with genealogies and myths and they keep wanting to talk and argue. You know those people, you've encountered them. There's some people just want to argue and argue and argue and it never ends. They're coming with this argument, that argument, not because they're trying to understand anything, but they're just because they just want to be divisive. They want to, they want to stop. They want to just keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And Paul tells Titus, with such a person, correct them once, correct them twice, and then have nothing to do with them. Paul is telling Titus, don't waste your time with this person. This person is warped in his thinking. This person is darkened in mind. This person is not interested. If you keep showing him, here's the truth. And they yes, they come. Eh, genealogy, this. Eh, bushibi, that. They, 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 they just, this, this. They just arguing. I'm just adding things, things all over the place. And you're like, Yazi, I'm exhausted. And you, know, and you know how these people are. Because they, they exhaust you. Like, I'm not getting anywhere with this person. It's just going around in circles and circles and circles. Just feel free to just say, listen, I'm, I'm going to... I'm going to use my energy elsewhere. Okay, I'm going to, I'm going to preach the gospel and, and, and where the Lord might be working. I'm not sure the Lord is working in you. I've told you the truth. You've heard it. You don't want to listen. You just want to keep arguing for the sake of argumentation. I'm not saying don't engage with people who are asking you real questions. You understand what I'm saying? And I'm not saying that if people are asking you real questions that you can't answer, it means you need to leave them. No. <laughs> say, I don't know. Let me go research and come back. You're with me? But we're talking about, and you know the spirit. I'm struggling to describe it, but I think you know what I'm talking about. The person who just argues for argument's sake. Stay away from them. That's what Paul tells us to do. We need to know that there are people that we need to just dust off our feet and just stop the talking in circles and move on. So that's the second reason for rejection. Now finally we come to the third one. So the first reason that we saw was money and influence in Cyprus. The second reason we saw that they, that they reject the gospel, the Jews, is because of jealousy. And now we come to Iconium in chapter 14, where we find disobedience. Look at chapter 14 from verse 1. Now it happened that in Iconium they entered together into the synagogue of the Jews and spoke in such a way that a large number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the Jews who were disobedient stirred up and poisoned the minds of the Gentiles against the brothers. When the missionaries arrive at Iconium, they enter again into the synagogues. Because again, they were rejecting the, the Jews in Pisidia and Antioch. But they, they, their normal way of preaching is that they start first in the synagogue. So here at Iconium, they start again at the synagogue. And what happens? We're told here very explicitly that a large number of both Jews and Gentiles believed. Now this is great news. But in verse 2, we're told that the Jews who were disobedient stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Now, if you're reading this from the ESV and the King James as well, KJV and KG, you'll see the word unbelieving in verse 2. The unbelieving Jews, uh, this, is, this is what they did. They, they chose the word unbelieving, but that's not really the most helpful phrase here. The, the helpful render, the most accurate rendering here is what is used by many other uh, uh, translations, which is disobeying. That's the word. This disobedience. This word is always translated as disobedience. And just as a bonus, you know, it is helpful in your Bible reading to not only rely on one translation. This is one of the reasons why. 
The NIV is actually better at capturing the sense of the sentence because the NIV renders it as because of the, it says the Jews who refused to believe. So they, they disobeyed. They were disobeying the gospel. See, why does Luke say to us the ones who, who causing trouble and poisoning the minds of others are the disobedient Jews? Why is Luke doing that? The gospel comes with a command from God. Those who hear it have a duty to obey. If God has spoken from heaven, human beings must obey. Especially those who are in covenant community with God. God bringing up out his promises to the Jews and calling them to respond and acknowledging God's work in Christ is a matter of obedience. They're not at choice, at liberty to choose. Is Jesus the Messiah or not? No, he is. They need to obey that. But these Jews choose not to obey. They choose to be stiff-necked, to go their own way. And we've seen this throughout the Old Testament and we've certainly seen this in the Gospels and the way that they're dealing with the Lord Jesus. If you're here this morning, friend, and you have not bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, you must know that the Scripture considers you disobedient. God is speaking to you, telling you what to do. Obey the fact that I've brought Christ and He's now calling you to come to Him as King and he's, that's something for you to do. Obey, turn, repent from what you're doing. He's not asking you to, to put Him in your heart. He's not saying, let's be friends. He's saying, I'm Lord, obey me. And the Bible says that if you do not listen, you are being disobedient. You need to come to the obedience of the faith. You need to come to the obedience. You must listen. Don't be a stiff-necked person continuing on when God has spoken. Now, how do the the apostles respond to this? Well, verse 3. It's interesting. Verse 2, it says, These men stirred up and poisoned the minds. But in verse 3... The apostles, in the face of these people who are stirring up everything, they stayed there a considerable time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who testified to the message of His grace, granting signs and wonders to perform through their hands. Well, there's something for us to learn here. The apostles stayed. The transition from verse 2 and 3 is quite remarkable. There's these people who are saying, don't listen, don't listen. And because of that, the apostles say, no, okay, you're, you're poisoning people's minds against us. We're going to sit here and stay. We're going to stay here and teach and preach the gospel. Here are two points in conclusion as we are out of time. Number one, the gospel rejection of the Jews is really a warning to us all about what happens when we do not listen to the Lord. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 that disobedience of the Jews is recorded for our benefit so that we might not act like them. So friends, Christians, hear me. We must be watchful for the love of money in our hearts and its destructive effects. We must be watchful for jealousy in our hearts and its destructive effects. We must be vigilant against stiff-neckedness and disobedience. What happened to the Jews as God's people has sadly also happened in history to Christians throughout Christianity's 2,000 years. Many have fallen for money. 
Many have been jealous of the gifts and power of God working in others, and many have stayed in disobedience, being willful in not listening to the Lord. Let it not be said of us. Watch out for these vices, even in your own heart. And number two, and gloriously, here's the second lesson. In the face of all this serious resistance to the gospel, the gospel still conquered. In Cyprus, what happened to Sergius Paulos? We're told he believed. In Pisidian Antioch, what happened to the Gentiles there that, that the Jews were jealous of? They believed. And here at Iconium, there were many whom the Lord saved, such that when you read on, the city was divided into two. Those who were for the apostles and those who were against. Because, of the, gospel, because the gospel continued and many were saved, there is, an, there is therefore to you and me never a need to change tactics in the midst of opposition. Don't stop preaching the gospel just because there's opposition. Don't stop praying that God will save people just because there is opposition. Don't stop coming and meeting with the saints to encourage one another just because there is opposition. There is no reason ever to attempt to make the church to win in the manner that the scriptures do not say just because there is opposition. We ought to do what the apostles did. They continued preaching. And so we must also, as we seek to, to make Christ known and glorified, let us also continue sharing the gospel. Also continue meeting with one another to encourage one another to share the gospel and, uh, and to live lives that are honoring to the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your church is an unstoppable force that has no immovable object in its path. You will establish your church in the midst of all kinds of opposition. And we pray, Lord, that you would even hear, here in our hearing this morning, that there would come those who are ordained to life, that they would come to life. And help us, Lord, to respond like the apostles when we are faced with opposition to the gospel, trusting that you are working and doing your work and that what you have said will never be thwarted by anyone. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.